Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earl. We're here today with Dr. Christia Spears Brown. She is a researcher. Her work focuses on how children and teens develop gender and ethnic stereotypes, how they're shaped by discrimination, and how that process can be disrupted. She frequently speaks to and consults with parent groups, schools, toy and media companies, and professional organizations about reducing the impact of stereotypes and discriminations. She's regularly featured in national and international media outlets, and she's served as an expert witness for the ACLU on cases of gender discrimination in schools. She's on the Anti-Racism Task Force for the Society for Research on Adolescence, and she's a fellow of the Association of Psychological Science. We're speaking with Christia today about her book, Unraveling Bias. We're going to see why it doesn't work to think that if we just don't teach our kids to be biased, then they won't be. We're going to talk about sexualization and Dr. Brown's research showing that even elementary school kids start to view sexy and smart as separate categories and girls cannot fit into both of them. And of course, we're going to be looking at what parents and educators can do to make a difference and to raise kids who can see through bias and can stand up to it. How do we raise teenagers who don't see themselves and others in a negative light? And how do we empower our kids to be advocates for equality and fairness? All of that and more is coming up on the show today. Dr. Brown, thank you so much for taking the time to be here. I read this book, Unraveling Bias, How Prejudice Has Shaped Children for Generations and Why It's Time to Break the Cycle. Clearly, you have um, a lot of your own research that you cite in this book, as well as research from a lot of other labs. So this is clearly something you've spent a lot of time investigating. Can you talk a little about where that came from or where this interest came from and why you then decided to turn it into a book. Sure. So I'm a developmental psychologist and, you know, professor, and I have always done research on how kids form stereotypes and how they understand discrimination. So I started that in graduate school was the focus of my study, my, you know, research. And so my whole career, that's been the topic. So, you know, I started that research in the late nineties. Um, and so have done it for a lot, for a long time and society continues to have the same issues over and over and over again, right? It, it morphs a little bit. Um, you know, immigration is often an issue that we talk about now. It wasn't as much in the late nineties in terms of children at the border and what kinds of policies we have there. And, um, so different things have been salient over time. But it's always been an issue. And so I've been increasingly interested in not just publishing in research journals, which is, you know, the the trade of um, academics and researchers, um, but yeah. to really talk to people that 
live and work with kids and have kids in their communities of care. Because um, the idea is that this affects really all kids and yet people are wanting to know what the science says, but the scientists aren't doing a great job of talking to people that actually work with kids um, yeah. and love kids and raise kids. So that was kind of the idea of the book was how do we talk about this um, in real families and real schools and real communities? Because it's going to take everybody pitching in and it shouldn't just live in a academic journal about developmental psychology. Yeah. So much interesting stuff in this book that um, really changed the way I think about a lot of these issues. And one even basic one right at the beginning was just talking about where bias comes from. And I think a lot of parents think, you know, hey, as long as I just kind of don't teach my kids to be biased, then they won't be. And there's some research in here um, showing babies uh, by three months old, you can tell that they're gazing longer at people the same race as the people raising them. So does that mean like where things just start super early and we're just trapped in this or what? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I definitely think that's the challenge with all of this is that as humans, because it starts so early, we typically think we must be hardwired to at least yeah. look at people and put them into categories. Okay. Right. Um, but it seems so there's something that we do seem to be as humans that makes us want to look at people and process people. So that's one thing that we do as humans and we do it from the very beginning. It's how we learn to survive and live as social animals. The second thing is the world is really complicated and complex and there's like a lot of variation out there. So the other trick as humans is we sort and categorize because it helps us simplify all the things out in the world. So yeah. it's better to, instead of process like every single dog I meet, to put them into one category of dogs and to kind of just assume that thing's going to bark and wag its tail and lick right. and eat, right? So it helps me sort and categorize the world. So you put those together, we unfortunately sort and categorize people mm -hmm. and we lump a bunch of characteristics with those people. However, it seems to be that we don't do it for every characteristic. Like we could do short people and tall people um, and big stereotypes about short and tall people or big uh, stereotypes yeah. about redheads and dark haired people and blonde which we have mm. silly ones, but not like not ones that we really shape our society by. Totally. Yeah. So what we seem to do, we don't have big stereotypes for blue eyed people and brown eyed people. Um, so it seems to be that, yes, we have this human tendency to pay attention to people and to lump them into easy to process categories. Yeah. But the ones we latch on to seem to be the ones society says is important. So it's because we attach meaning to race and we use race, we're, we're sorted by race, families typically, um, single race families, everyone is the same race in the household, the schools are segregated, television shows are often segregated, right. you know, the world looks like someone decided, you know, Latino people live in this neighborhood, black people live in this neighborhood, white people right. live in this neighborhood, so kids pay attention to those cues. When it comes to gender, we say, good morning, boys and girls. What a smart girl you are. Let's line up girl, boy, girl, boy. Like we're constantly labeling it. We have to go to the girl's uh, restroom or the boy's restroom. So kids latch on to that stuff because it's like big neon arrow saying, these are the groups to pay attention to. Let's pay attention to them. And then you have all the structural biases that make inequalities in place. So because of history of oppression and racism, we have 
inequalities in terms of who has more wealth and who has higher paying jobs. So then you put all this societal meaning. And so then you get the biases that we kind of recognize. So I think if we changed how society treated the groups and we changed the structural biases so that there weren't those disparities in terms of like income and education, uh, and the way people I... are treated, then yeah, babies would still look at people and they might be able to even put them in categories, but they wouldn't attach any meaning to it that was um, significant, right? Yeah. So it'd be just like yeah. how we look at blue eyed people and brown eyed people. We see it and we can categorize people if we were asked to, but sure. we don't walk around yeah. with like stereotypes about brown eyed people. So I think that's the idea, right? That we are predisposed to some things, but it doesn't have to have all the weight if we changed how we treated groups. So then um, you write that ignoring bias in childhood is not working. Um, parents and teachers act like children are colorblind and that if they discuss race in any way, their kids will suddenly notice race for the first time as though racial differences miraculously will be revealed after one conversation about race. Um, so that's not that's not really how it works huh? <laughs> no because i mean yeah they're paying attention when they're babies by the time they're three and four they start to have stereotypes by the time they start elementary school they're they have racial prejudices they prefer people that look like them in terms of their racial group and will tell you to your face if you ask them questions about it um i always think that people who assume that kids are colorblind have never given their kids a racial attitude questionnaire because <laughs> when you actually ask them about it it is a little bit horrifying <laughs> um, and that's all kids and i don't think that it's a deeper thing i think that all kids pay attention to race they attribute certain traits and characteristics to racial groups and unless we talk about it and correct them then those those ideas are allowed to strengthen and get more entrenched. So then you talk about the studies with dolls and they do these doll studies with kids. Um, and then you have a thing in here about CNN, like redoing this doll study later on and finding finding the bias really only in white kids how does this work and what why is that significant yeah so one of the first studies that ever looked at kids ideas about race was done in the 40s um, and they were really kind of famous and it was Clark and Clark and it was as I talk about in the book a lot you know really kind of the basis for some science that they used in Brown v Board of Education to desegregate schools yeah. and what they found back then was that kids um, they they interviewed black kids young black children about which doll they liked better and they showed them a white doll and a black doll and they said which one is the nice one which one do you want to play with which one looks like you which one is dirty and what they found was these black kids in the 40s said they liked the white doll better and that they mm -hmm. wanted to play with that one and that they thought that was the nicer smarter doll basically okay. there's some more nuance to it but that's the crux of it and so the idea was that black kids were seemingly kind of rejecting the thing that looked like them and that that made people really concerned because you want kids to feel proud of the group that they're from and so what 
that's what led in many ways to the Supreme Court change about how schools were segregated, saying that when you have black kids that are um, seem to have kind of low self-esteem about their racial group, that's troubling. And so we need to undo how we're doing things in the country. Well, over time, however, what we've seen is that movements over the 70s and 80s, so some people attribute it to this, a movement in like the 70s called the Black is Beautiful movement of really having kind of racial pride and um, within Black families really talking about the great things about being Black or African-American, for example, and that that culturally really shifted how kids were thinking about their own race. And so now when you ask, black kids, as they did on CNN, um, an Anderson Cooper special about which doll they liked and who was nice and smart and all of those things. Most black kids are like the black doll is. Um, so like that, that what they kind of talked about self-hatred of like the 40s um, has really seems to have gone away. However, if you ask white kids, <laughs> um, white kids still look really pretty biased. Um, and when they uh -huh. gave lots of other measures, the white kids are really still saying the black doll is bad. So, and this is consistent across lots of racial attitude studies. So okay. typically kids of color look really unbiased. So they'll say both groups are nice. Both groups are smart. Both groups are um, kind of equally valuable. Yeah. White kids, however, typically say, white people are the best white people are nicer and smarter and more positive qualities so what you see typically is white kids show the most biases and that was kind of illustrated in that doll study that they captured on tv and what was noticeable about that was they then the parents of those white kids that were expressing racial biases were pretty horrified by seeing yeah. their kid express racial biases I didn't teach them that. I don't know where they learned that. <laughs> right, right, right. And I think that's what's true for a lot of white parents is yeah. if they could hear their white kids give answers to these, I think a lot of people would be horrified because it's not yeah. as though it's taught at home. The problem is, though, it's never talked about at home. Whites treat typically race as a taboo topic. Yeah. And so white kids have developed lots of attitudes that parents are probably oblivious to. Yeah, I see. So where does that come from? Because kids are really smart and they pay attention yeah. to the world. I think parents Subtle often. things. Yeah, I think parents often assume they're the sole source of information yeah, for their yeah, kids. Yeah. And I mean, I have two kids too, so I get as it. As long as I don't I... tell them racist things, <laughs> they will not develop they, those right. attitudes. Yeah. But kids seem to do, it's a thing we call they're constructivists. So they okay. tend to look at the world and construct their own explanations. Mm -hmm. And often their explanations are biased. Um, and so, I mean, so, so an example of how they do this is there was a study done right before Barack Obama was elected president. So not that long ago, but we had mm -hmm. not had a black president before when this okay, study yeah. was being done, but it was in the 2000s. Um, and they were asking kids, the researchers were asking kids, um, have you noticed that they're, you know, about the race of the presidents and we're asking about why, like, why do you think there's never been a black president? Yeah. And a third of the kids, like a third of even the black kids said, it's against the law for black people to be president. Wow. Yes. Um, and so, and you know, a third of girls thought it was against the law for a woman to be president. Mm -hmm. Um, and so well, the idea is because it is against the rules for them to play in the NBA, 
Um, <laughs> right. So. And if you look at it in the kids' view, and so, I mean, the, the point of this, too, is that clearly no one ever told kids it's against the law for women or black oh, people to be president. Of course not. But yeah. if you look at the poster in, like, every class in America of all the presidents, yeah. it looks like someone made a rule, right? Yep. right? Like, it looks like someone said, oh, they have to be white guys. Yeah. Especially for kids who live in a rule-based world where their life is dictated by rules. Yeah. And right. so it's a kind of logical explanation but it's clearly the kids constructed it on their own. Mm. Um, so what we see is that kids seem to look at a world in which there's differences in wealth, there's differences in incarceration, there's differences in how media portrays who's in a gang versus who's the boss. Yeah. And so kids then take all the, those, the, those pieces of information, that input, and yeah. come up with an explanation. I say, and if, I see what's going on here. Oh, yeah, okay. and if yeah. parents aren't talking about it and helping kids develop a schema for all of that and like yeah. a different explanation, yep. then kids are going to come up with, well, one group must be better than the other group, right? That's the logical explanation if you don't have – help understanding structural racism or other kinds mm -hmm. of inequality or discrimination. So kids are left to come up with their own logic, which is often pretty flawed. Something interesting that you brought up in your book is that uh, oh, it's about schools and it's about uh, racial and ethnic break breakdowns of schools. And you say that schools with a really even integration of two racial ethnic groups, a 50-50 mix, show the highest rates of racial segregation in friendships where, for example, black kids are only friends with other black kids and white kids are only friends with other white kids. What's going on here? Doesn't it seem like making it even mix um, is the best way to sort of get kids to have cross cultural friendships and see each other as this normal? Yes. So that's what's a tricky finding. And it's been shown in enough studies that I, I buy it. So I put it's reliable. It in there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Is Yes, it, there needs to be a balance, but what seems to be the best balance is when it's more than just the two groups. Yeah. So it's when it's two, it's like two teams battling each other. Right, yeah, it creates this um, like... Um, right, it's like a just an us them. versus them. Right. right, so if there's more variation, so throw in Latino kids and Asian kids and maybe some indigenous kids, yep. and you have more variation, then it does seem to be the best. So definitely diversity is really good. Um, you want a mix of kids. It just seems to be better if it's truly diverse in that there's lots of variation sprinkled in than if it was is just only two groups that are evenly kind of matched. It seems to be more us versus them. So schools that were actually a reflection of the country, for example. Um, so, you know, the country has a big mix of particularly white, black, and Latino. Yeah. And so schools where those groups are pretty equally mixed, or at least even if it's not like 30%, 33% across, but a big enough mix that everyone has critical mass, right? So no one's in the, the sharp minority. Um, though that seems to be the best for breaking down those group divisions. That's really interesting. And um, 
that's pretty hard to get around the fact that uh, a lot of times it's going to be about 50-50 boys and girls. Yeah, and so boys and girls are a different, it's an interesting thing. So, you know, in the book I do, you know, I talk about race and gender and sexual orientation. And um, so in a lot of ways, there's similarities. In a lot of ways, there's differences. And one of them is okay. boys and girls are pretty 50-50 for the most part, although there's right. lots of kids that are non-binary and don't fit in that those categories. Totally. Um, so with gender, I recommend, though, that what's different about gender is we really foster segregation so when you're in elementary school you know you have girls only birthday parties or boys yeah, only birthday right. parties and you know single gender sports and single gender classrooms for example like pe and so we really foster that us versus them i mean think about how many times on a elementary school playground it was boys against the girls yeah, um, right right whereas think about we would never do that with race um no. not in 2021 right and so we do really foster the us versus them and so what the disadvantage of that and why i think that's a thing we want to move away from is it allows girls to develop good friendships with girls but treat boys as kind of foreign beings that you're only interested in for dating for example, and boys right. foster the same thing. Boys are only friends and then girls are only objects to date. Yeah. And it, it prevents us from developing cross-gender friendships, which are going to be critical for later life. Like we need to figure out how to develop friendships that are not romantic or sexual, but are just, we treat each other as individuals for friendship. And I think would lead to a lot better relationships particularly for straight couples who then are going to be forced to live with someone of another gender um if, you know if they partner up with them in adulthood but if we've never had times to be like actual legitimate friends it makes it much more complicated it could also yeah. foster things like sexual harassment and a lot of other pretty destructive behaviors in adolescence probably because boys and girls have just never had this history of interacting with one another and then you throw yeah. hormones into the mix and they don't really know what they're doing. There's some really interesting stuff in here about gender. And one thing that I found really fascinating was you talk about that girls are expected to be the good students in class, but not the best students. When Researchers asked elementary school aged children who does well in school by earning good grades. Children overwhelmingly said girls. But when they asked who's really, really smart, by age six, both boys and girls said it's the boys. And I thought that's so interesting. And you point out how actually researchers found that there's no difference in, in, in fact, girls tend to actually earn higher grades than boys in math and science classes. There's not a difference in standardized test scores, but we still sort of like have these we saw this narrative that kids are learning as early as uh, age six um, that, yeah, the boys are, are really, really smart, even though they don't, don't do as well in yeah. class. What, what the heck is going on there? <laughs> well, it's a funny thing, and I think it's where the psychology of all this matters, too, in that girls are doing better in math and sciences. However, where there is a significant difference is in girls' math anxiety 
and math confidence. So girls mm -hmm. have significantly, and even in like big meta-analyses, so it's a pretty robust finding, girls have more math anxiety than boys do, and boys have more math confidence than girls. So you have this thing where you have equal uh, scores, but mm -hmm. boys are overconfident. So they're estimating their grades as better and girls are underconfident. So estimating their scores is lower. So, right. So everyone is, and a similar thing with anxiety, girls are doing really well, but are anxious about it. Boys are, you know, fine, but are not at all anxious. So you have this boys and girls both believe boys are doing better than girls are and because they and they're definitely more confident than girls even though their right. performance is the same um, and you're seeing similar things with parents and teachers and it's also about kind of what types of explanations they have for the performance so you have boys and girls okay. equally do well they'll assume the boy in math is naturally good at math but the girl mm. only did well because she worked really she hard. She studied a lot. Yeah. Right. She studied a lot. So you see that attribution bias in both parents and teachers. And so it is, it's this tricky thing of this, it's the belief that boys mm. are good at math. Yeah. And so then girls start to pull away from math. So they start to pull their identity yeah. out of being great math. Even again, even though they're doing well, their lack of confidence and anxiety leads them, seems to be to lead them to identify with other things like language-based things or language arts or English. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it's, it is really divorced. There. Yeah, they feel more confidence there. So it's really frustrating finding because you're like, but y'all are doing well. What's <laughs> but you're going great. On? What are you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, it's really subtle stuff. So, you know, think about parents. Parents do things like when kids are doing their homework at home, doing yeah. math homework. Parents are more likely to offer help to oh, daughters like than to sons. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it's that like subtle, it's like super subtle stuff that undercuts their confidence. Yeah, and, you know, yeah, parents yeah. talk, I have a study that, that was led by a graduate student at UCLA where it was looking at how often parents talk to little boys and girls, so like three-year-olds, okay. about math, like basic numbers. Like, you know, oh, look, you have four grapes. Oh, there's two red cars. Let's count the mailboxes, that kind of stuff. Right, yeah. And they found they did it with sons like three times more than they did it with daughters. Um, and this was like naturally occurring where they like would record natural just conversations. Right. So parents yeah, yeah, didn't yeah. know they were in a, These things you, know, they you didn't don't know even realize was, you're doing it. You, you just don't like, even realize it. Yeah. Right. So I think it's that like really subtle cues kids are getting that lead to their endorsement of what they think they're good at. And it goes back to what we were talking about earlier with the, Hey, I'm not teaching my kids this stuff. And if you ask parents, right. like, are you teaching your sons and daughters that, you know, math is for boys? No, I'm not. I would never, right. I don't believe that. And, and you honestly, honestly don't, but like on some level you do, because why are you the, using such different language with boys and girls around it? Yeah. And I think, you know, I think that's part of, part of why I was writing this book too, is I think most parents would be horrified <laughs> to yeah. think that their kid was yeah. learning race biases or gender biases from them. Like I honestly totally. believe no parent we I mean, there's clearly some that. parents, right? But I, I'm certain parents of girls are not 
saying, oh, I'm teaching my girl subtly that math is not for her. Right. right? No. Um, but I think that a lot of us are just very accidentally. I think we don't realize how perceptive kids are. Yeah. Yeah. These subtle, subtle things uh, add up over their entire life and make such a huge difference. I mean, you know, to swing it back to race and the idea of how subtle it can be is, you know, a lot of us have implicit biases. You know, societies, we've talked quite a bit about like implicit biases or like the subtle biases that you're not even conscious of or kind of unconscious biases. Yeah. And what researchers find is that even when you firmly believe that groups should be treated equally, like race groups should be treated equally, sometimes if you've seen enough racial biases in media, for example, your bot, mm -hmm. your brain has made these connections between like black men and crime, for example, just because yeah. you've seen it so much on the news, that's bias. You see it on biased television and movies and all of that. Yeah. So you have these racial biases in your brain that are independent of how you feel in your heart. Yeah. But what happens is it comes out in really subtle nonverbal behaviors. So how much you smile at a person, how much you make eye contact, whether your body leans towards someone or away from somebody, very, yeah. very subtle. And they've done these studies where they put kids in a lab and they show them people with these really subtle behaviors, these subtle nonverbal behaviors. Yeah. And kids' attitudes went along with their parents and these other adults' implicit attitudes simply based on them picking up from these nonverbal cues. So it can be like how much you're smiling at people or making eye contact. Kids are extrapolating meaning from that and assuming Mom doesn't like this group as much as this group, so I'm oh. going to align my attitudes. And again, it can be very different than what parents are believing in their hearts, but totally. yeah, yeah, it's yeah. subtly coming out in their facial expressions. We're here with Dr. Christia Spears-Brown, and we're talking about how prejudice develops in children, even if we don't teach it to them, and what parents can do about it. And we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show. Just being proactive about the acceptance. That way, if your kid is gay, they've already known, oh, this is fine. Often parents of girls will buy books about, you know, girl scientists or, you know, parents of color will buy it for about, you know, scientists of color. But white boys also need to see. Yeah, we feel like they need a little scientists. bit of a boost, like, but, you know, yeah. our boys, they're fine. They, they're already, they're, exactly. they're already no, more boys, confident than they need to be. Actually. <laughs> right. <They're good. laughs> boys need to realize that girls are science, that, you know, that women uh, are scientists and that scientists are also, you know, people of color. Yeah. I think that's where we don't you know, we often assume those should only be for the group rep underrepresented, but really mm -hmm. all kids need to see it. Because these don't have to be, let's sit down and talk about racism or sexism or homophobia in this like one conversation, like have the little conversations, but regularly. So have the two minute conversation in the car about something that's going on in the news, or you finish watching a TV show or a movie together, have the two or three minute right. conversation about yeah. how would you feel if that happened to you? What do you think you would do? Mm. And if you do that regularly, then it starts to become part of how they think. Yeah. Um, and it is, it's showing compassion, showing empathy, pointing out where biases are at play so they can see it differently. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think we do that for lots of other parenting behaviors. You know, like we think about it for eating healthy or being kind or go outside and get some exercise or make sure you put right. your screens down, right? All those other things we say all the time. 
this is just a thing I think needs to be as valuable as other traits that we try to foster. Research suggests we're not so inherently different that we can't be brought together. We just need to teach people how to treat each other with kindness and respect better. But that's a teachable, that's a teachable skill. Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. You get access to all the interviews I've conducted, as well as new episodes weeks before the general public. It's completely affordable, and your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening.